Hello, good morning, good afternoon. Hello. Good morning. Hi. Good to see everybody. Okay, I think we're all here, so we can go ahead and start. So this will be uh, class one of our Yoga Sutras class series with Michael Gadway. We had uh, last month, we had our introduction to the series. And so now we're uh, starting with class one, covering Pada one or chapter one. So I will turn it over to Michael. Thank you, Pascal. Hi, everybody. Let's just do a centering meditation. More for me than you. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting upright. Let's close our eyes and raise our gaze to look out through that third eye center, Ajna Chakra. Take a deep breath in. Let it go. Let us first inwardly acknowledge the truth of our own existence being that at the core we are already whole and complete. And that what is true for us is also true for every other living creature on the planet. Let's acknowledge this Kriya Yoga Guru lineage. Pranam Mahavatar Babaji. Lahiri Mahasayaji. Swami Sri Yukteswarji. Paramahansa Yogananda Ji. Roy Eugene Davis Ji and their successors. God, Christ, Guru, Om, Peace, Amen. So before we begin, let's just do a review. Several of you, this is going over it again and again, but I just want to make sure because I'm caught off guard often at how few people can actually define the word yoga. So I always start out the class by defining the word yoga for us. Uh, When we talk about yoga in the West, we usually mean three distinct definitions. What may surprise you is that nowhere in the Bhagavad Gita, nowhere in the Yoga Sutras, nowhere in the Upanishads, nowhere in the Vedas, do they actually define yoga. It's not defined anywhere. And in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna refers to yoga, the, what we call the yoga of Krishna, he almost never says yoga. He almost always says, 99% of the time, Samkhya yoga. So there's this understanding in the Gita and the other texts that yoga is the practical extension of Samkhya philosophy. That the first thing that came was the study of Samkhya. After Samkhya came the practicality of yoga. And so they are one and the same, according to Krishna. In the West, usually when we say yoga, we mean Hatha yoga. But it turns out Hatha yoga is not discussed anywhere in the Yoga Sutras. It doesn't exist. The only place it exists is under Ashtanga yoga. And it talks about one's asana. Asana, the word literally means to sit. As, sit, ah, not na breath or motion so to sit without breath or motion is asana and the only thing it says about it is it should be fixed and firm and comfortable that's all nowhere else does hatha yoga come up in the text at all so hatha yoga is the first way we mean when we talk about yoga that's what most people understand yoga to be 
The second way we mean when we talk about yoga is this idea of a system of practices and procedures. Yoganandaji referred to this as the science of self-realization. I think he used the term science, science pretty loosely. But in essence, the science of self-realization is parinama chitta. That is the transformation of consciousness. And the yoga, yoga sutras, in fact, are all about the transformation of consciousness. And so they are an empowering scripture because they train us how to become self-liberated with a capital S. The third way when we talk about yoga, we talk about yoga meaning from the root Sanskrit root word yuj, meaning to yoke or union. Uh, that it is used as a synonym for samadhi. Uh, but as you know, there's an argument to be made, as I've said, that yoga and samadhi are not equatable exactly. That yoga is the result of everything going still, and samadhi is the end result of something that is directional. So when we talk about the yoga sutras, we are talking about those three things, specifically two of them, union, and the science of self-realization. So we practice yoga to experience yoga. So I'm going to start by sharing my screen with you. This one. So we just defined yoga. What we're looking at now is today the Pada One. So let's just take a brief summary of it. Pada means quarter. There are four quarters in the Yoga Sutras. You could use the word chapter if you wanted to. In Pada 1, there are 51 sutras, short truth statements. And for the most part, they explain what is known as Niroda Yoga. As a matter of fact, Pada 1, the first quarter, we could actually call that Pada Niroda Yoga. And if you remember from our last talk, there isn't just one kind of yoga in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. There are at least four different kinds of yoga. Niroda Yoga, Kriya Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, and Kaivalya Yoga. At least those four. Many scholars say there's more like seven. But we're going to look at just one today, Niroda Yoga. This first pada the first thing it does is begins to describe states of awareness. And they're known as vritti. And we're going to talk about that today. The next thing it does is it sum summarizes practices and procedures. And it talks about the mind and its modifications. And then, believe it or not, it lists all the obstacles that yogis go have to face in order to experience samadhi and niroda. And then it gives us a bunch of techniques that we can use to overcome those obstacles. And it lists those as well. And then the very end of this pada describes the different states of samadhi. And believe it or not, there are not just two kinds of samadhi described. There's not just savikalpa samadhi and nirvikalpa samadhi described in the Yoga Sutras. There are seven different kinds of samadhi because there were probably multiple authors who described this way, the different yogas and samadhi in different ways. Today, under Pada 1, we're only going to talk about two kinds of samadhi. 
The first pada is actually called the samadhi pada. And samadhi has a couple different meanings. And it's a great way because it's perfect. First of all, it means sort of to tie everything together. So the very first pada ties everything together for us. And also, again, samadhi means union. In other words, the union of the observer with that which is being observed. This is samadhi, union. So there are a few terms today that we need to learn before we begin. The first is the word sutra. A sutra is a short truth statement, meaning aphorism. That's what an aphorism is. The word itself means thread. So yoga sutras are threads of union. And in this particular pada, quarter, chapter, there are 51 threads of union. Okay, And they end up at the very end talking about samadhi. The last five or six sutras are all about samadhi and how to attain it. The word pada means quarter. We're also going to talk about the word chitta and vritti. We're going to go over those in a minute. And the last thing we need to know is the word samskara. Samskara literally means well-planned action taken. The best way to understand samskara as we move through it are subliminal activators. So they are subliminal triggers. So we get triggered and suddenly the needle of the record player goes onto the record and plays automatically, we think. In other words, like we walk into a room and we have this sense, oh, everybody's talking about me. That would be a samskara. Your mind immediately goes, oh, everybody's talking about me. Okay? So in the first pada, we have three restrictions or obstacles to overcome in order to achieve samadhi, oneness, union, niroda. We'll talk about that. They are chitta, vritti, and samskara. You may have heard the word klesha. That doesn't occur until the second pada. So today, in this pada, we only need to worry about these three obstacles to overcome. The chitta, the vritti, and the samskara. So let's talk about the first chitta. Chitta literally comes from the Sanskrit root word meaning to perceive. A lot of authors call it mind stuff. It's really consciousness. And in fact, the Yoga Sutras are about Parinama Chitta, transformation of consciousness. Paramahansa Yogananda said that Chitta is an inclusive word that includes manas, the mind, the thinking principle. The word man comes from manas. Bhuti, Bhuti is the intuitive intelligence. In other words, the ability to know by knowing. Ahamkara, Ahamkara literally means I am-ness. That is that false sense of a separate self. Roy referred to this as the ego. And last is prana. Prana is the subtlest form of energy from which all other energy comes. You may know that as life force. Okay? The reason it's very important to understand 
why these things need to be looked at and cleaned up and brought to a standstill is because the booty is the window through which or the mirror in which the soul views itself. So if the booty is not clean and clear, and if there is a bunch of motion, the soul cannot view itself. It cannot experience self-realization, which is, aha, I am that. If there's too much motion in the mind, too much motion in the booty, too much stuff in the way, attachments, aversions, clingings, the soul cannot view itself. So this is an important understanding, chitta. We have to know that chitta is something that we have to work on. The next thing we need to work on, according to the first pada, is the vritti. Most people think there's five, but there's actually ten of them. There's the afflicted ones and the non-afflicted ones. Klista, aklista. The vritti are often referred to as the whirlpools, but that doesn't work for me, and here's why. It's this idea that if you look at what they are, valid cognition, that means without taking in information without error. Misapprehension, taking information with error. Conceptualization, creating castles in the air. And sleep and memory. These are all ways in which we take in information and process it. They are, in essence, states of awareness. So the idea that vritti is a whirlpool, it's more like being in the eye or center of a tornado. We, the soul, stand quietly and still, and all this information is whirling around us. And we are taking information in and processing it constantly. So the vritti are always in motion. And so you can see we process information this way. So they really are states of awareness, and they're always in motion. It's really interesting because in, at least it's interesting for me, in Patanjali Yoga Sutras, they say that sleep is the attempt at non-becoming. That's interesting because the mind is always taking in and processing information. We're always trying to become something. And the Yoga Sutras say sleep is is an attempt at non-becoming. So we need a break from processing the world. We go to sleep. The mind goes to sleep. Okay? So both the chitta and the vritti are those obstacles we need to bring to a standstill and clean up, according to the first pada, in order to experience samadhi. The very first sutra says, Atta Yoga Anushasanam. Now yoga instruction. Almost always now means previous instruction has gone on. We know what yoga means. And we have studied Samkhya philosophy already. And so now we have studied the philosophy and we're ready to apply the practical side of it, which is what yoga is. Yoga is the practical side of Samkhya. So we talked about the Chitta Navriti and what it is, right? Well, sure enough, the, ver- the second sutra 
actually talks about it. And it says, Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. It's pretty famous by now. But remember, the Yoga Sutras have very few verbs. 74% of the Yoga Sutras are written without verbs. So we could write this as a mathematical equation and it'll work. Yoga equals when the chitta and the vritti are at niroda. The word niroda means to arrest or to bring to stillness. And it also means the process of arresting and the process of bringing something to stillness. So yoga, if we look at this, we understand that yoga means two things. Yoga means union, but also yoga means the process of self-realization. So union occurs when the chitta and the vritti are arrested. And the process of yoga is the process of arresting the chitta and the vritti, according to Pada 1. So this Parinama Chitta, this transformation of consciousness, is learning to arrest the Vritta, Vritti, and the Chitta. Does that make sense to everybody? Am I being clear? Okay. So the whole first Pada is about this equation, the entire one. So we could actually call Samadhi Pada the Niroda Pada. And in fact, I did in one of my books, because the entire thing is about achieving niroda, arresting and bringing all of this to a stillness. Okay? So the definition of this last sutra is, the process of yoga is the practice of restraining the chitta and the vritti, and yoga, union, occurs when the chitta and the vritti are restrained. Okay? So all of this is going on in Pada 1. And they are training us how to do this. Okay? Once we have achieved this, then the seer abides in its own form. And the word they use for own form is sva. Sva it means self. As in soul. As in Atman. So once the chitta and the vritti are brought to a standstill, and the booty is cleaned up, and the, and the soul is viewing through the booty, the intuitive intelligence itself, without motion, without all the stuff in the way, then it abides in its own form. And the term they use for that is Sva Rupa, R-U-P-E, self-form with a capital S. So when we clean all that stuff up, there's nothing to get in the way of us experiencing the truth of our being. I, I want to tell you that as I'm going through this first pada, by the way, I'm not doing it in the exact order the pada is because it's very confusing if I was going through it because in the first pada, it comes back and forth and refer, refers onto itself. So I put them in order. And I'm also obviously paraphrasing, so you know. And it says right there that in order to experience this, in order for the soul to rest in itself, self-realization, that takes effort. 
And it says effort is practice with dispassion. And it actually defines dispassion as living without thirst. So you're practicing this, but you're not thirsty for it. Okay. And then it says samadhi is preceded by these things. Faith. We have to believe we can do it. Energy. We have to have enough energy. Brahmacharya. Right use of vital energies, by the way. Same thing. Energy. And here's, it's interesting, because here, the word they use in the Yoga Sutras is shmriti. Shmriti, we've learned as memory, or the things that we bring through study. But shmriti is actually mindfulness. So right there in yoga, the very early text of yoga, it's talking about mindfulness already. Mindfulness is not a Buddhist discovery. Buddha was a yogi. It actually came from yoga and Samkhya philosophy. So there has been a form of yoga mindfulness right from the beginning. And then bliss and super consciousness. What's really interesting about super consciousness is it talks about at a certain level of samadhi, super conscious forces flood the mind, rerouting neural pathways, burning up samskara. But it talks about it happening at the fourth level. There are two levels. The first level is Sabikapa or Sabikapa Samadhi. There are four levels to that. And the next level is Nirvikapa Samadhi. And it's at the highest level of Sabikapa Samadhi that the Samskara get overwritten, but not until then. The next thing the Padas talk about are the obstacles each of us yogis go through or have to face. And look at this crazy list. Sickness, languor, doubt, heedlessness, sloth, carelessness. I spelled carelessness wrong. Ha! I spelled carelessness wrong. I carelessly spelled it wrong. Sorry about that. Laziness, sense indulgence, false views, non-attaining, unsteadiness. And then it says, along with these obstacles, these things accompany them. So when you're going through all these things, you also are very likely to experience suffering, depression, unsteadiness of limbs and breath. All those things we've all been through as we struggle to free ourselves from the stuff in our minds. Let's talk about this word, though, suffering. The word they actually use is dukkha or dukkham. The reason that's important, as you've all heard me say, is because there isn't actually a word for it in English. We say suffering, but that's not a very good translation. There is a word for it in Latin and French, douleur, this idea of emotional pain. That's as close as we can come to the word ducum, douleur. The word literally means bad axle hole. So it's this idea that you're facing something that's coming up from the subconscious that's causing you grief. Christa, aklista. And the mind goes out looking for the solution. And when it finds the solution, it doesn't like that answer. And so it comes right back around to its original place. This is suffering according to yoga. The mind 
bad axle hold, going out and around over and over and over again because it doesn't like the answer. It resists the right answer, the right response. Hence, uh, radical acceptance, surrender is part of yoga. So a bad axle hole, the closest we can come to in English for suffering in this word is emotional angst. So we are going around and around in the mind. Okay. And then the next thing it says, it begins to list all the ways we can counteract those obstacles. So we're going to go over the things the Yoga Sutras, Pada 1 says, counteract all these challenges. The first thing it uses is called Ekatatva. Ekatatva is literally the practice of one thing. This is interesting because we can look at this in two different ways. The first way scholars and saints look at Ekatatva is this idea of understanding that there isn't just one God, that everything is God expressing as. The understanding that there is only one thing, one consciousness, that everything that is presented to us is the same consciousness as us, as we. There is no I, there is only we. What this does is, when we practice it, we understand that when we are confronted with challenges, oh, this is consciousness awakening consciousness. And when we learn to do that, we stop taking things personally. We begin to learn and understand that it is not someone coming at us, that we, consciousness, are awakening, and what is ever presented to us is also consciousness assisting itself in the awakening process, the practice of one thing. The other way we can take Ekatatva is there in the Yoga Sutras, they have what are known as the stations of Brahma. You may have seen this from Buddhism, but there it is in yoga. And there are five stations of Brahma. They are friendliness, mayatri, gladness, compassion, happiness, and equanimity. And when they talk about practicing one thing, what they train us to do is to pick one of these. Let's pick, for example, friendliness. And then to practice friendliness under all circumstances for at least three months. Have you ever tried that? You should try it. It ain't easy. It's interesting how the moment you commit to one of these practices, life, consciousness, rises up and says, oh, you want to practice friendliness? Here are a bunch of people that aren't very friendly for you to practice friendliness with. You will be challenged the moment you commit to it, three months practice, day in and day out. What this does, it is very effective at dissolving ego. For example, if you have to be friendly no matter what, you go to the grocery store and someone treats you terrible, and you have to be friendly anyway, guess what has to come last? That sense of I amness. You're learning to behave despite how you feel or how insulted you are, you're being a certain way. And in doing so, it dissolves the ego. All these 
are very effective when you practice them at dissolving ego, putting the self last. So the very first thing we learn in Pada 1 is Ekatetva, that is the practice of one thing. And again, this practice is to counteract the obstacles and to clarify the mind. In and of themselves, I once asked a Buddhist teacher, does practicing the five stations in Brahma enlighten us? And his answer, he sat, he got a little upset with me, but he got quiet and said, no. These practices do not of themselves bring enlightenment. They clarify the mind, purify the mind in order for our awakening to come from within. Okay. The next thing the Yoga Sutras talk about is the use of pranayama. Very effective, especially surrendering the inhalation to the exhalation and surrendering the exhalation to the inhalation, the practice of pranayama. That's a whole talk, our talk all by itself, so we're not going to get to. The next thing it tells us to practice is object-centered activity. And the reason for this is when you take the mind and you apply it to one thing, all the other things going on around you still to silence. It's like, have you ever been focused on something that you were very, very interested in? In essence, you are meditating on that thing. Everything else goes away. The breath stills. The focus gets very intent. So when you're challenged by these things, you can choose to focus on a single activity in order to give yourself a break. Now, remember, this is not suppression or repression. This is choosing to focus on one thing, because when you do that, the conscious mind is on that centered activity, but the subconscious mind is still working on the challenge. That's different than compartmentalizing and submerging it into back into the subconscious. And it actually says the other way to overcome everything is to go into samadhi. This is a this is a catch-22, though, because in order for you to go into samadhi, you have to clean up all that stuff. But in order, so if you go into samadhi to clean up the stuff, sort of a catch-22 in Pada. The other way we can look at this is a mind that is free of attachments. If we were not attached to anything, we would not have the ego in the way the mind would already be a clearer. This is interesting because this is not the same as Pada 2, which teaches us the kleshas, which talk about attachments, aversions, and clingings. Here in Pada 1, we learn that just being free from attachments is enough to free ourselves from all the other things. It's a little bit different approach. Again, a different yoga. And we have to ask ourselves, why are there so many different yogas in the Yoga Sutras? Well, just as there are four yogas in the Bhagavad Gita, because different temperaments, different ways of approaching things, the Yoga Sutras are complete unto themselves and made for all these different ways of approaching enlightenment. And remember, as Roy said, we cannot cause enlightenment to happen. We prepare for it. All these are ways we prepare for our awakening. Okay? 
The next thing it tells us is we can derive knowledge from both sleep and dreaming. And we can use that knowledge to awaken. Okay? And remember, sleep is the attempt at non-becoming. So in sleep, the mind shuts down. It finds a place to land and rest. And the subconscious can work on what it needs to work on. Sleep is very important. Roy always taught us to become conscious dreamers. Because when we become conscious dreamers, we learn the fluidity of both the mind and the world. And that learning the fluidity of the mind teaches us that the stuff in our head is not fixed. That we can work through it. And the less identified with the stuff in the mind we are, the easier it is to mitigate it, change it. Okay? So we can use that knowledge that we get in sleep and dreams to resolve the stuff in the mind that's getting in our way. Next thing it teaches us is to meditate. It literally says meditation will clean things up. So the process of it. So meditation, everybody here at CSA, we should be very adept meditators, I'm sure. Surprisingly, the next way is by pure devotion. If we have an Eka Tattva, that is, a personalized view of God, and we are devoted to it, the Yoga Sutras say Ishvara, which is that highest sense of Atman. Or if we're devoted to the process of awakening, that alone can raise us up into a higher consciousness. So if you are a devotional type, nurture it. Nurture your devotion. If you're a yana, nurture it. Whatever your path is. The last way it talks about in Pada 1 for overcoming all these obstacles is literally contemplating Om. But it doesn't use the word Om. It uses the word pronouncement. The contemplation of the pronouncement overcomes all obstacles. And the other thing it says about Om is Om is the significator of the source. In other words, Om has to come from somewhere. And we can follow Om. Roy taught listening to the inner sounds as one of the ways of contemplating Om. And we can follow that sound back to its source. And there it is right in the Yoga Sutras to do that. Okay? And then the last part of the Pada 1 talks about all the different kinds of samadhi. It talks about the samadhi of wisdom, the samadhi of light. In some traditions, there are 17 different levels of samadhi. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there are fundamentally two. The first samadhi it talks about is Savikalpa samadhi. And it says that Savikalpa is conceptualization, imagination, and understanding are commingled in it. Savi or Savikalpa Samadhi literally means Samadhi with doubt or Samadhi with difference. Samadhi with difference, the difference is there is still a sense of Ahamkara. 
there is still I amness in Savikalpa Samadhi. In other words, there is still awareness. This idea of a subject and an object. Aha, I am that. So in Savikalpa Samadhi, there's still a I am light, I am bliss, I am sound, I am space, whatever it is. There's still the sense of I amness, okay? And the mind is still possibly working, okay? In Savikalpa Samadhi, you can experience higher states of Samadhi and the mind still be functioning. And then it goes on and says there's actually four levels that the mind functions in Savikalpa Samadhi. There is the level of gross thoughts. There's Samadhi without gross thoughts. There is Samadhi with subtle thoughts and Samadhi without subtle thoughts. So not only is the mind working, there's different ways it classifies the mind as working. So there are four levels of Savikalpa Samadhi. The next Samadhi it talks about, and this is our last thing we have to talk about today, is Nirvikalpa or Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Nir means without. So it's Samadhi without a difference or Samadhi without doubt. The difference, what is without? There's no I amness here. Here, there is no separate sense of an existence. There is no ahamkara, no I amness. There is only existence being. That is why, according to yoga, it is not right to say, I am God. Because if we say, I am God, the very fact that we can say, I am that, indicates a separate sense of self. If we can say, I am, then we are not that. Because once we have experienced nirvikalpa samadhi, no longer is there an I. And this tells us the levels of awakening. The first level of awakening is this ordinary sense of awareness. There is a subject there and his object. I understand I am not you. I am this, you are that. This is the mundane level. The next level of awareness is, again, Savikalpa Samadhi. This is self-realization. Aha, I am that. Right? I am soul. I am spirit. But here there is still awareness, isn't there? There's still a separate sense of I amness about it. Because you're still saying I am, and you're pointing to that. I am spirit. I am soul. Yeah? The next level is no more I. There is only existence being. That's that story about Yoganandaji. They asked Yogananda about Gainamada after her passing. And Yoganandaji said, one quote I read, he said, Gainamata is no more. So he was saying there is no longer a separate self that exists that we can name. She completely merged into oneness of spirit. Here, the memory has become purified. The mind has become transparent and transcended. 
So the chitta and the vritti and the samskara are all cleaned up. There is no impurity. There is nothing to stand in the way of the soul experiencing its unity and oneness. In other words, parinama chitta has been successful. The transformation of consciousness is now complete. And the separate sense of self existence has been obliterated. So we teach in yoga, when you're experiencing union, you're not giving up anything, you're gaining everything. Right? The ego itself cannot kill itself. It must be willingly surrendered. One of the ways this has been interpreted, and by the way, this is a quote from the end of the Padawan. When the mind is as pure as the soul, illumination dawns in the organ of intelligence. So once the mind, chitta and the vritti have been cleaned up, samskara are gone, aha, I am that becomes permanent. And potentially Yoga Sutras actually says it is multiple experiences of sabi kalpa samadhi, aha, I am that, before one is established in that. Okay. So I've often had many people tell me stories of their samadhi, but they didn't have it over and over again. We must continually practice dispassion, effort at going back into samadhi states in order for it to become permanent. God just doesn't hand it over to us once, and there it is forever. We have to continually make the effort to surrender to God. Then, the mind is used just as a tool. Yogananda, in his later years, used to talk about, he'd say, I no longer know which body to animate. So established was he in unity that he had to choose which mind and body to activate because he was no longer identified with either. This is the end of the first pada. I'm getting rid of it. Did we get any questions or did I just go off for too long? <laughs> so when we're studying the Yoga Sutras, it helps to get a big picture because they don't always flow succinctly. Okay. So when we're looking at it, it's understanding that this is a process with a beginning, Atta Yoga Anushasanam, now yoga instruction, and there's an end. Samadhi. And samadhi is achieved with niroda, the restraining and the arresting of chitta and vritti. And this is a process of transformation that we can consciously practice day by day. The best way I know was Yogananda's words, and that is read a little, meditate more. Think of God all the time. Yoga is not something you can practice on the weekend. 
Yoga is dharmic living, righteous, moral living with profound contemplation, meditation, ending in samadhi and prayer. Any questions? This is part of one. I have a question. Oh, yeah. Mark? You said that uh, the uh, it's it's at the the very first uh, sutra. It's preceded by a knowledge of Samkhya Yoga, Samkhya philosophy. Can you uh, encapsulate that in a sentence or two? That's the uh, study of uh, the stages of of cosmic manifestation, isn't it? That's part of it. That. Uh, the enumeration, Samkhya means enumeration. And Samkhya is the oldest ashtika or school of thought in India. All other ones came after it. It was the original. And Samkhya philosophy says that life is, that suffering is inherent to living. And, but there's a way out of suffering. And that is gnosis, knowledge knowledge specifically of spiritual matters. So it's very much where Buddhism came from. And that it also says in Samkhya philosophy, if your practices are not directly related to finding God, you're wasting your time. It literally says that. (laughs) So Samkhya philosophy, not only is the enumeration, the unfoldment of the multiverse, which we've seen in Roy's books, pure existence being followed by the Godhead where the gunas are Om, right. You know, all that manifestation down to the physical universe, but it is an entire philosophy and understanding that how to awaken to spiritual oneness unity. Although they're a dualistic approach, there's spirit and nature, but it's still this sense of you want to end suffering. Here's how yoga came along. Yogis came along and said, Knowledge is important, we need it, but it doesn't have a practicality to it. We need a practical implementation of that philosophy. Here's yoga. So yoga came after Samkhya, and it was the practical extension of Samkhya philosophy. And in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna actually always says Samkhya yoga. Always. Is, is that that's not one sentence sorry <laughs> but it was a good answer though okay gail did you want to ask a question yes um so uh, so far as um consistent surrendering to god hmm. which is necessary to get to that point where you can hold on to your samadhi it's my understanding of what you were saying today um when when we were at retreat one of your discussions you talked about going back into your meditation like three times oh so is that how you practice consistent Mm -hmm. surrendering so my guru roy eugene davis taught that once a week to double your the length of your meditation practice 
So if you're practicing 20 minutes every day, once a week, sit down for 40 minutes. If you're 40 minutes, sit down for 80. So that discussion I had with you was my way of doing the long meditations. So when I sit down to meditate for twice the length once a week, I am personally a spontaneous meditator. So I just sit, turn inward. The experience unfolds from within and I just watch it happen. And it begins, it peaks, and then it fades. So what I choose to do in order to extend those meditations is make sure that I have at least, I sit for at least three peaks. So I'll sit in my meditation, it'll peak, it'll come back out. And then as I come back out, I choose to use one of the tools we learned. It could be mantra, it could be practicing Kriya Pranayama, it could be chanting up the chakras, it could be just chanting. And that starts the process all over again, and it peaks. And then I start to come out again. We all come out again. Everybody knows that feeling, oh, this experience is starting to settle. I'm starting to come out. And then I'll practice another tool or technique to go back in a third time. And this helps me personally practice longer periods of meditation. But the most important part of your meditation is the deep, profound silence, resting alertly in it. When the mind, right, niroda, when everything begins to move towards stillness. Because remember, it is the booty, the intuitive intelligence through which the soul views itself. In order for that to happen, everything must come to a standstill. Resting in the deep, profound silence is that standstill. And the experience blossoms from within, right? You're not making anything happen. You're not bringing it in. It blossoms from within you. And then there is this, ah, I am that. Aha. Right? You can't make that happen. There has to be a surrendered focus in meditation. Does that help? Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Anybody else? Michael Green. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm going to stay, my man. How you doing? Good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. And thank you again for your your your, your talks and everything. It's very, it's very awakening and enlightening. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Uh, you, I know you have a number of books. Which book would you recommend we should read first? Oh. Um, so the first book, I, I've done th three books specifically on potentially Yoga Sutras. You can go in order if you want to. Um, the first one is Niroda Yoga, potentially. Mm -hmm. And by the way, these will be on CSA's website shortly as well. You can get them directly from CSA. Oh, okay. And the Niroda Yoga is the first pada. Mm. And then the next book I did was the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali. And that's the first half of the second pada, which is okay. the Kriya Yoga section. Okay. And then I did a book called the Ashtanga Yoga of Patanjali. Okay. And Michael, currently, I would say about three months away, mm. I'm 
I'm in about a fourth of the way through it, I guess. Uh, I'm doing a Yoga Sutras workbook. Okay. And that workbook will become available on the on on the website as well. Okay. So we'll okay. have a whole package you can order. Yeah. It never occurred to me I would become a Yoga Sutras expert. And I, just, and I did it because I loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, uh, what does the sutra say like with the, with the conscious, subconscious, and superconscious uh, mind? Even though they they're all one thing. They're all one thing. So it doesn't actually discuss those three sections of the mind in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Mm-hmm. It talks about the mind being a tool to, in the, in the fourth pada, though, not here in the first pada. It talks about the mind being a tool, a, a medium through which the soul can function. The thing about the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita and all other Vedic understanding is they assume you have already reached a place of surrender and radical acceptance. So there is no discussion of, oh, you have to face your stuff down because they're assuming you're already facing it down, right? So they have assumed in all yoga philosophy that the stuff in the subconscious has been brought to the conscious mind and you're already there facing it down. The entire Bhagavad Gita is the setting of it is here at the battlefield, all that stuff is Krishna and Arjuna are looking at it. They have already radically accepted it. It's there. All 2 million warriors and challenges are on the battlefield and they are fully consciously aware of it. So there is this presupposition in yoga that you have already brought your stuff up from the subconscious mind to the conscious mind, and you are currently looking at it. These are all your demons. These are all the warriors that you're looking at in the Gita. Mm -hmm. So then we go from the the conscious mind where we've neutralized it with all these different techniques we have, and then... Once we have faced everything down, we can bring it to the sub- super consciousness. Hmm. Roy used to talk about, he would say almost effortlessly, he would say, it's in the super conscious mind that we look at it. And he said, you just see the nothingness of it. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds easy. <laughs> but what he was telling us is that in the super consciousness, At the causal level, which is where the seed, the idea was formed in the mind. If you can go there, you can dissolve the seed of it, the bija of it. Okay. And that is the super consciousness at the causal level. And Roy could do that. And he did that for me once. I was sitting in meditation in class. I, I went with this big problem. I don't even remember what it was now, but it was a big one then, trust me. Mm. And I was sitting in the back of the room and suddenly I felt his consciousness within me and I was lifted up and then I saw this problem I was working on and then suddenly it went like that. Mm. I just saw the nothingness of it. I never have been able to do that on my own, but that's the process. So it's possible 
that you don't have to work on everything at the conscious level. You can bring it into the super consciousness and see the nothingness of it. But there's a trick with that, Michael, and that is you can't bring it to the super conscious level and see the nothingness of it if you haven't faced it down and are aware of it at the conscious level. Okay, yeah. Okay. So surrender is one of those words that Westerners get hung up on because it often has a sense of, I give up. So what I encourage is, instead of using the word surrender, use the term radical acceptance. Okay, radical acceptance. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, my man. You're welcome. Anybody else? We're good. Thank you all for being here today. My honor. Pascal, do you want to take over again? Thank you, Michael. So our, our next class uh, with Michael will be on June 25th. So it's a month from now. So um, you're welcome to read and study the next chapter and have lots of questions for him <laughs> when we come together again. So thank you all so much for joining and uh, we'll see you tomorrow for the yeah. Sunday service with Leodi Franklin. Namaste. 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 Thank you thank all. You so much. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Robin, for coming. Wonderful. Appreciate it.